Once again, good morning. Thank you for being here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. This is, as you know, the season of Advent. You're hearing uh, uh, passages from the uh, incarnation of our Lord and Savior from Scripture. But from the pulpit, we're looking at different passages, and we're always asking, what does the Advent mean for this? If I come this morning and I feel in this way, what does the Advent mean for this? This morning we'll be thinking about what it might feel like if we feel forgotten by God, what it might feel like to be encouraged by the season of Advent. We'll be looking this morning at a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 through 4. Before we read this passage, would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for making yourself known. We ask, Heavenly Father, that by your Holy Spirit that you would teach us your word this morning. You have indeed already begun that over the course of this worship service, reminding us of who you are and nourishing us by your affection for us. Teach us with your word and help us to go into this week applying it for your namesake. Amen. Our passage is from Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 4. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. This is the word of our Lord. Well, it may be that the feeling of forgottenness doesn't quite capture who you are this morning, and it may be as well that you can't recall a time where you felt forgotten. And that's okay. Just wait as we look at this passage and and hear how God ministers to those who would otherwise be forgotten. I want you to think of uh, this morning an image that I'm going to ask you little theologians to work on drawing for me. And the image is one of a person who is stranded on an island, one island and one person. That's easy to imagine, isn't it, little theologians? But I I want you to also imagine that there is this one person on this one island, and in the waters around that island, well, the island is surrounded by boats. So that seems good, doesn't it? But everyone on those boats are looking for more territory, another island. They're not there to rescue this man who is left alone on this island. They're there to take this man's island away from him. We're looking at the uh, writing of the prophet 
Isaiah. And Isaiah is uh, writing to a people who feel this. They feel like they are on an island that's about to be taken away from them. And they're, of course, not on an island, but they are surrounded by the enemy. And that's who Isaiah is writing. People who are surrounded by the enemy and they feel as though God has forgotten them and forsaken them. That image is pretty uh, prescient, isn't it? It's easy to imagine that kind of scene, but I hope that over the course of the sermon to show you that sometimes we feel like that person on an island. Our experience of God's goodness to us as Christian people is oftentimes clouded by the difficulty of our circumstances. And here in this passage, Isaiah, he has a good news for people like that. But in a way, he also has bad news. And I want to reflect on that at the very conclusion of the sermon. But here's what this passage is telling us. This passage is telling you and telling me. I do not get to decide who I am as a person. God, he will tell me who I am. So, this is good news and this is bad news. The bad news for later. But what I want us to notice right at the very beginning, how uh, constrained Isaiah seems to be. Isaiah, he seems to have hit a breaking point in this passage. That's where I want to begin. You know who's speaking, don't you, in verse 1? It's Isaiah. And and then listen to, to the great confidence that he has for Zion's sake. For Zion's sake. Zion is another name for the city of Jerusalem. For the sake of the inhabitants of the city, what what does Isaiah say in verse 1? He says, I will not keep silent. He goes on, for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Uh, Twice, uh, what does he seem to be doing? Well, you be the judge. Look at verse 1. He seems to be encouraging himself to uh, resist being silent and quiet. And to speak and to speak loudly. He seems to have this, this torn disposition and he's encouraging himself. And we, we get to hear him do this and he's encouraging himself. I will not keep silent and I will not be quiet. Why do you think that he is torn about this? Well, the historical setting into which Isaiah is writing is a setting of great suffering. The cities of uh, uh, Both Israel and Jerusalem are haunted uh, by the powers in the north. And the powers in the north are are laying siege to cities. And Isaiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are seeing these cities fall at the hands of the Assyrians. And in fact, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is surrounded by... And the historical setting is hard. The focus of the hearers of Isaiah is a a focus on meeting immediate needs. They need food. They need water. They need some kind of relief. They're listening to the watchman on the wall. When will the day come when the wall is broken? The audience is struggling And Isaiah, he doesn't want to keep quiet. He has to speak to them. But there's another good reason why he is feeling as though maybe he shouldn't speak. Because Isaiah seems to be the only one who is hoping on the things of God. He seems alone in his hope. 
He has been preaching repeatedly and he's not being listened to. In fact, he's being persecuted by his hearers. They chide him. They turn him off. And Isaiah surely must be thinking, I have been preaching and preaching, but why bother when no one cares? They're overcome with their circumstances. They have no time to listen to the gospel of God. And even still, what does Isaiah say? I cannot be quiet. I have to preach. Now, there's something that's happening to the people of Jerusalem under the preaching ministry of Isaiah. The people have already defined themselves. And in defining themselves, they have defined God. Look with me at verse 4. He says to them, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. What does that tell us? It tells us that the people have given up on God. They are forsaken by God. They are left desolate by God. They have turned that chapter and moved on. The needs are far too great to be thinking about the rescue of God. He had his chance, and he has forsaken me, and he has left me desolate. I'm on my own now. It's time to look for real solutions. Aren't these really tragic names for themselves, forsaken and desolate? To be forsaken is to be utterly abandoned, completely left behind. And to be uh, desolate is the result of having been abandoned, deserted, a wasteland, surrounded by ruins. Think again of that image of a person stranded on an island, forsaken and desolate. But as we look at verse 4, we have to understand that this simply isn't about uh, circumstances, the setting in which they find themselves. This is actually about their hearts. Their hearts are forsaken and desolate. Their hearts are that sandy uh, island, that place of no rescue, and they feel this. This is the audience that Isaiah is preaching to. And this is the audience that has left Isaiah. They've moved on and they have just admitted, look, there's no hope. I'm forsaken and I'm desolate. I wonder what you might say to people who say this about themselves in a, a difficult circumstance like this, surrounded by the enemy. I'm forsaken, I'm desolate. Would you be tempted to agree with them? Would you offer to them uh, platitudes, uh, vain uh, hopes, everything will be fine tomorrow. Go to bed and you'll wake up and it's a new day. Will you in encourage them at all in this feeling of forsakenness and being desolate? Well, how about this? They feel this way, in a sense, for rational reasons. Their circumstances are preaching this to them. Their circumstances are so bad that the circumstances themselves are informing what they think about their station in life. I know that I'm forsaken and I know that I'm desolate. That's the message that is being preached to me by the difficult circumstances in which I find myself. They're besieged by the enemy. Their food supply is 
cut. Neighbors are falling around them. And all of this informs them of the name that they give themselves. Forsake, desolate. It's actually pretty rational. Their circumstances are teaching them what to say about themselves. We experience this, don't we? We actually know exactly what this feels like. Our circumstances hold enormous sway over how we think about ourselves. It's not like we need proof, but I'll offer some proof. The circumstances of our vocation, our our occupation, that actually informs what we call ourselves, doesn't it? A third of our week is spent at work. Does your job speak more about you than the gospel of grace? The circumstances of your vocation, they preach to you. They tell you that you are a person who who has a position of seniority. You are a person who is meeting your sales target. You are a person who is surely going to get the promotion. You are a person who has many people uh, under you. You are a person who has a job that is satisfying. And we allow these circumstances, this circumstance of vocation, to tell us who we are. That's who I am. It's negative as well, doesn't it? It goes negatively, doesn't it? Sometimes my job will tell me how unsatisfying life is. Sometimes my job highlights my failures and my inabilities. And all the while, that job, rather positively or negatively, is preaching to you and preaching to me, telling us who we are. Our vocations can sometimes do that. But not only that, our prospects for the future can sometimes do that. We, all of us, plan for the future. We have a vision for our future, a vision that tells us that things are going to be a bit better. We have this game plan. We go to a school that we think is going to generate this kind of future. We get married to the kind of person that we think is going to generate a certain kind of future. Our future prospects are bound up in our children such that our hope for our children is that they would uh, go to college and find a spouse and uh, attend a great church and get a great job. We put all of our hope and our our future prospects in our children doing that. Sometimes our future prospects are just about our long-term plan for a better job and annual vacation and retirement in Costa Rica. But that prospect that we have for the future, that too can preach to us and tell us who we are. I'm a good saver for retirement. I'm a good planner for uncertain things in the future. There's something else that can preach to us who we are. The people around us can do that. The relationships that we have, a a person and what they think about me, how that person sees me, that actually can define who I think that I am. The things that people have done to me uh, in the past, those things can inform who I think that I am. We all, all know this. Our vocations can tell us who we are. Our hopes for the future can tell us who we are. Other people and our relationships can tell us who we are. These things are circumstances and they preach to us. What is your job preaching to you, telling you about yourself? And your prospects for the future, 
your great hopes. What do those prospects tell you about yourself? And we're living in an era in which other people oftentimes determine who we are. What they say about us makes me who I am. Or the goodness or the badness of my relationships tell me what I am. This is really worth thinking about because we currently find ourselves in a time in cultural history in which there is something else that is competing, uh, telling me, preaching to me uh, who I am. And it's not just my vocation and my prospect for the future, and it's not just other people. We live in an age in which the sense of identity our own sense of identity, that too, preaches to us to tell me uh, who I am. All of us have noticed how in recent history the naming of our identity has become so thoroughly central. We live in a world in which skin color and ethnicity and sexual tastes and preferences or our gender or non-gender that we feel, these things, they preach to us. They're circumstantial and they tell us who we are. The circumstance of my skin color or how I feel about myself sexually preaches to me to give me a name? Yes. Yes. The name that you call yourself, homosexual, bisexual, trans man, trans woman, non-binary, aren't these circumstances that are preaching to us to tell me who I am? Would someone please give me a name? And the people of Jerusalem are informed by their circumstances and they give themselves a name, forsaken and desolate. And in that naming, they have defined God, cast him far away, and they've filled in the gaps with their own sense of who they are. Now, if you'll entertain with me that that may be the case, that may be your experience, are you interested in the answer to this question? What does God call you? Is that interesting at all? What does God call you? You know, we often talk about the authority of the Bible in such depersonalized ways. We believe in the authority of the, uh, of the Bible here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. It is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. But we often think about the real value of Scripture's authority is a value that tells us how to behave or what to think about culture or what to think about science or what will happen in the future. And, and, and the Bible does address those matters. But don't neglect this wonderful doctrine that flows out of scriptural authority. This wonderful doctrine tells us this. It tells us who we are. Apart from our circumstances, from my past, my struggles, God's holy word tells us who we are. And we'll never know this unless we actually will hear this from scripture. Otherwise, our circumstances, they'll preach to us and we'll believe who we are from a different source. In our passage, did you catch the promise in verse 2? You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. Did you read that as a promise? And did it entice you at all or did you just, uh, just rush right over it? 
God, he's not only mindful of you, but God, he gives you a name. You see, the Bible tells us that we did not create ourselves. The Bible tells us that we were not created by chance either. The Bible tells us that we are created by God and and not merely a God who is far away, a God who is actually close to us. He's both transcendent and he is personal. And this is not all. The Bible tells us that we were created not for ourselves, not for ourselves. We were created for a relationship with him and not a distant relationship, but a close relationship. In this relationship, we were created to worship him. And we were created to realize all of our joy and peace in him. And we were created to place all of our hope and success in him. The Bible says that no man or woman truly understand who they are apart from this very relationship. This is who we are, created by God to have a relationship with him. And when we live our lives apart from him, when we turn that page, when we decide that our circumstances speak more accurately than God's holy word, what we do is we fill in the gaps. We answer all of the big questions in our life about God. We don't just wait and ponder, who am I? We actually answer that question. We don't Stop asking what happens after death, or how can I be happy, or how can I have peace? We continue to ask those questions even though we have turned that chapter away from God and we refuse to consider him. And the way we answer those questions is by looking at the data that is around us, and we use that data to answer these questions, who I am and what happens after death, and how can I be happy? And that data is our vocation and our future prospects and our relationships and what I sense about my own identity. But wouldn't you rather hear what God says about you? And thankfully, the Bible does this. The Bible tells us that what we call ourselves is actually less powerful than what God calls us. The proof for that is in our passage, if you would look at verse 4. Do you see that word, a term? You term yourself one thing, but I call you something else. Do you see that in verse 4? In the Hebrew, this is really punchy. It stands out. The things that we call ourselves are less powerful than the things that God calls us. These two verbs, term and call, they're two Hebrew verbs for naming. And the one that's more powerful is the one that God does. God's naming is far more powerful. Whatever you call yourself, you actually have less authority to do so than what God calls you. You term yourself, but God, he he calls you something. And he calls you something with a higher volume and with a surer guarantee. Do you think that that matters? The one who has created us for a relationship with him, he will tell us what is an appropriate way to name ourselves. His name for us is more authoritative than any name that we have for ourselves. It's the season of Advent, and if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to admit one and praise God for the other. Admit that you are trying to name yourself. By your circumstances, you're trying to define yourself. But we praise God during the season of Advent because he doesn't allow us to do that. He 
comes to us. He meets us. He makes himself known that the preaching of his gospel would be louder than the preaching of the world around you. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, you need both of these things. You need to, you need to know that you're always trying to name yourself, and you need to know that God won't stand for it, and he comes close to you to give you a new name, a better name. I don't get to decide who I am as a person. God, he tells me. Well, what does he tell me? In Christ Jesus, he tells me what I find in verse 4. He gives me such a strange name. My delight is in her. That's my name. And apparently my middle name is married. You see that in verse 4. My delight is in her and married. These are the names that belong to someone who is uh, married and loved by a perfect spouse. It's almost, it's almost beyond imagination to imagine God taking delight in me. You don't know my sins. I hardly know my own sins. But it's nearly beyond my imagination that God would take delight in me. My delight is in her and married almost beyond imagination. And notice that God's name for them is so different for, from their name for themselves. Uh, actually, polar opposites. What they're calling themselves is the exact opposite of what God calls them. We should know that by experience. And notice also that the circumstances, they don't change in order for God's naming of them to be true. The scholar E.J. Young says that the change in the names is not due to any human improvement in their situation. Their situation doesn't change. It's the same. It's hard. But God, he has shown favor of his own initiative. He's done this. The life, the situations, they're the same. But God, in his grace and in his mercy and by his energy, he comes to them. He delights in them and he marries himself to them. Is it any wonder then that Isaiah can't keep his mouth closed? And may this never be a silent pulpit, but a pulpit uh, in which the minister doesn't keep his mouth closed, but reminds people of who they are in Christ Jesus. May I never keep my mouth closed. It's the season of Advent. And Advent is about God coming to preach to us and uh, tell us who we really are, to tell us that he has not forgotten us, that he is with us. This is the season of Advent. And he has come to say that you don't get to decide who you are as a person. I will tell you who you are. Welcome to the season of Advent. God says to all those in Christ Jesus, I have made you for a relationship with me, and indeed you have that in him. Without me, you will never find yourself in Christ. I will tell you what yourself is. But here's why this is both good news and bad news. If you're a Christian, you need to be reminded that you are not forgotten. You are not forsaken. The circumstances, they look very, very difficult and they feel very difficult. You are not forsaken. He has called you married, and he has called you, my delight is in you. 
And this is wonderful news for a Christian to to be reminded that all of these circumstances around me, they actually don't own me and they don't have the authority to preach to me who I am. Some of us find ourselves this Christmas season in circumstances that are not the way we would like. But that's okay, because in Christ Jesus, your name is married, and your name is my delight is in you. But if you're here this morning and you're on the fence about the things of Jesus, you're still feeling your way through this, this is going to be, well, if not entirely bad news, it's going to sound bad-ish. Because God tells you who you are as well. And God says that you are a sinner in need of his grace, that you cannot save yourself, that you may be able to rectify some of the circumstances into which you find yourself but it's never going to last. He's not married to you, and he has not taken his delight in you apart from Jesus Christ. But it's the season of Advent, and Christians are talking about God's love for them in Christ Jesus, that Christ has come and that Christ will come again. And if you're not a Christian, take note of the season of Advent. The one who has the power to name us has come, and he will come again. Let's pray together. Our Holy Father, we do thank you for your love for us in Christ Jesus, and we thank you that uh, we have your delight and affection because of what he's done for us on the cross. Oh, Holy Father, we're sorry that we need this constant reminder, but we are so full of joy that you offer us this reminder. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the season of Advent. In Jesus' name, amen.